You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Three, two, one... But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Welcome Earnhardt in, Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. September 29th, 2021, people. This is the final episode. Of September with the Air Torres Sports Podcast. I know you thought I was going to say the final episode of the Air Torres Podcast. What? I like you, Torres. Sometimes. A, a little bit. Every once in a while, I like you. No, this is the final episode of September. Even the way I said it was kind of weird coming out of my mouth. Final episode of September of the Air Torres Sports Podcast. First of all, want to continue to thank you for your support. Unbelievable support for this show. The numbers are up from last September. The numbers are up certainly from the summertime. Obviously, you know, I'm, I'm paranoid about this show. It's my baby. I worried about going back to three episodes a week. I worried about do you guys want to talk college football? And the numbers have been incredible. So thank you for your guys' support. Uh, we got a great show for you today, final episode of September. First of all, uh, we got a major weekend in college football coming up. And so I am not going to do the full-fledged preview. That is for Friday's episode, but what I will do is this. I believe Saturday is the most important weekend of college football to date. We are going to learn so much about so many teams. Ole Miss, Arkansas, Alabama, Georgia, Cincinnati, Michigan, Kentucky, Clemson, on and on and on and on and on. So I am dubbing this Show Me Something Saturday. Now ESPN, they're going to be boring and call it Separation Saturday. This is Show Me Something Saturday. We're going to get into all the teams that have something to prove this Saturday. Then from there, we will pause, take a quick break, come back, and you know what we're going to talk about? We're talking about some college hoops, and here's why. College basketball practice started on Tuesday. So we are now basically five weeks away from the start of the season. Champions Classic, Duke, Michigan, uh, Duke, Kentucky, Michigan State, Kansas. We are like five weeks away. And so what I want to do is with practice officially underway, I came up with seven storylines that I believe are the seven most interesting storylines going into college basketball season. That is where we will wrap the show. Uh, and then, yeah, and then it's go time. We hit October. Obviously, we'll be talking a ton of college football, more college hoops. We'll try to get some more marquee guests on this show, but it has been an incredible September, and thank you for your guys' support. And with that said, people, no more time to waste. Let's get into the topic of the day. And as I said, I believe this is what I am calling Show Me Something Saturday because I believe this is the best and most important week of the college football season. And it's interesting because, you know, you go back to week one of the college football season, and I think if you just look at those games relative to the games this week, you'd say week one was a little bit better. We had Georgia Clemson. We had LSU-UCLA. We had Alabama-Miami. We had Notre Dame-Florida State. We had Ole Miss-Louisville. It was this incredible Saturday of college football, and you're not wrong in saying that. But at the same time, I think now that we look back on that week one slate, you start to realize that some of those games that we thought were going to be incredible, they don't look so incredible anymore. I mean, Georgia, we come out of week one talking about that defensive performance against Clemson. Turns out Clemson just stinks. Uh, same with Notre Dame barely beating Florida State. Is Florida State on the rise? No, they stink too. Notre Dame barely holds on to beat them. UCLA signature win over LSU. Is LSU actually any good? And so you look back at week one, and I don't think that slate is as important as this coming weekend. 
This coming weekend, we are going to learn so much about so many teams. Ole Miss at Alabama, Arkansas at Georgia, Michigan at Wisconsin, um, Notre Dame hosting Cincinnati. And so let's get into what I am calling Show Me Something Saturday. And here are the teams that I want to show me something going into this Saturday, week five of college football. Let's start with the big one, Ole Miss at Alabama. This is a fascinating game, and I talked about it on the college football show earlier this week, and I'm sure I'll talk about it on Friday's show as well. But it's fascinating because whether Alabama fans want to admit it or not, and I know many of you listen to this show, um, Alabama fans are a little spooked by Ole Miss. If you remember Ole Miss, you could argue, outside of Florida in the SEC championship game, gave Alabama more trouble than anyone in college football last year. This was, I think, the third, fourth game in the Lane Kiffin era. The game is in Oxford, and they just scored on Alabama and kept scoring on Alabama, and Alabama basically had to hold on for dear life to beat Ole Miss. The final score was 63-48, to but it was 21-21 at halftime. It was 42-35 to after the third quarter, and basically Ole Miss just ran out of gas. And so when I say it's show me something Saturday, Ole Miss, I believe, looks significantly better than last year, specifically on the defensive side of the football. Last year, they scored a lot of points, but they gave up a ton of points as well. This year, they have largely taken care of business in their first three games. In their first three games, we all saw two of them anyway. Uh, the first one, they played uh, Louisville on that Monday night Labor Day 43-24 final score. But if you watch the game, they were up 26 to nothing at halftime. Lane Kiffin wasn't even in the building, made it that much more impressive. From there, they beat Austin P 54 to 17. They beat Tulane 61 to 21. But I think the question that we all have going into this one is, are they really that improved or have they just played bad teams that they could run up the score on? And so that is why it's show me something Saturday to Ole Miss. First of all, they are running the ball incredibly well, fourth in the country in total rushing yardage, which is way up. I think we think of Ole Miss as this pass happy offense, but the the um, but the, the 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 run game is much better than it has been. And then defensively, I think they've been better than people realize. You look at their overall uh, stats, they don't blow you away, but compared to last year when they were literally the worst Power 5 team defensively in college football, yes, even worse than LSU, uh, you look at this year, they're only giving up 345 yards of total offense on uh, when they are on defense. And so what I want to see from Ole Miss is pretty simple. Are you just that pass-happy, high-scoring team that has to beat everybody, beat good teams 50-48, to 48, uh, or are you a team that can get a few stops? Now, I'm not saying you got to beat Alabama, but if it's 63-48 to 48 again, I think we just kind of sit there and say, until Ole Miss shows me something different, they're that team that scores a lot of points but gives up a lot of points, and there really ain't nothing else to them until we see otherwise. By the way, if it's at least competitive, I think it completely changes how we look at the rest of the SEC West because if they can play just a lick of defense, all of a sudden it completely changes how they match up with LSU, how they match up with A&M, how they match up with Auburn, how they match up with Arkansas. But if they are the same team as last year, if they turn the ball over the way they did last year, if they can't play defense like they did last year, then it's going to be, you know, a 7-5 and five football team that wins some games 50-48 to 48 and loses some games 50-48. to 48. I would also say, as far as this game's concerned, I think we have a lot to learn about Alabama, too. Because Alabama, to their credit, took care of the teams that they had to out of conference. But we also watched that game against Florida, and it was not pretty. I talked about it. It might be easy to forget in hindsight. They could have very easily lost that game to Florida in a game where Florida really largely dominated them on both lines of scrimmage. If you go back to that Saturday, and I understand it was at the Swamp, I understand Florida is the number one rushing team in college football, but Alabama, mighty Alabama, gave up almost six yards per carry, 245 yards rushing against Florida. Ole Miss has a much better pass game to complement their run game than Florida ever did, and if, if Alabama does not come with their big boy hats on ready to stop the run, I mean, they might still win. But again, it'll be 60 to 40, you know, 60 to 56 or something, and they're going to have to show something. So is Alabama the complete team that we expected in the preseason, or are they a team that is soft along the line of scrimmage? I've never called the Nick Saban team soft before, but they got bullied against Florida, and I think it'll be fascinating to see. It's also worth noting they struggled to run the ball against Florida as well, so that is something to keep in mind as it pertains to this game. Next big game, Georgia hosting Arkansas. 
And what I would say is, in terms of show me something Saturday, I don't know that Arkansas is probably the only team that I don't really believe has to show me anything, okay? I don't really believe that there's really anything that can happen in this game that would make me say, everything that happened through four games is a fraud. Now, what I will say is a couple things. One, obviously, you're going in as almost a two and a half, almost three touchdown underdog in this game to Georgia. Last time I checked, the point spread was 18 and a half, Georgia an 18 and a half point favorite. But you go into this game, and I think the thing that we're going to learn from Arkansas, not are they going to beat Georgia, not are they going to win the national championship, not are they going to the playoff, but I think we'll learn how far along this rebuild under Sam Pittman is because, one, this isn't a game you're supposed to win, and, two, I think this is a game where potentially the the body blows that come with playing in the SEC could catch up to you. Last week, you have a really physical game against Texas A&M. You come out of it, you're starting quarterback, KJ Jefferson's banged up, your leading receiver, Traylon Burks, is, is banged up. And so in this game, it becomes a question of, are you ready to come back again, same thing I used, hard hats, ready to play a second straight week against another physical team? By the way, if Arkansas doesn't win, doesn't mean they're terrible. They have showed me a lot through two weeks, or through four weeks, but they're going to show me a lot if they're competitive into the fourth quarter against Georgia, let alone if they actually pull the upset. Now, on the flip side, Georgia is weirdly, I think, a team that has maybe even more to prove in this game. And you guys know, coming into the year, I did like Georgia. They were my national championship pick. How about them dogs? Okay, enough of that. Uh, I love Georgia. And to their credit, listen, they're the one team, and I always say this, I never criticize a team for kicking the crap out of teams that they're supposed to, okay? Uh, and Georgia has done that. There's a lot of teams that go into games as a comfortable underdog, as a comfortable favorite, and they win by a touchdown. They have to kick a field goal. They have to do whatever. Georgia, outside of that Clemson game, beat UAB 56-7, to beat South Carolina 40-13, to beat Vandy 52 to nothing. And so I really like this team. They've been really impressive. But I do think there's a, there is a portion of the population that is now starting to look at that Clemson game and say, well, wait a second now. They didn't score a single offensive point against Clemson, and Clemson's terrible. So, yes, the Clemson defense is good, but is Georgia that good or is Clemson that bad? I think if Georgia goes into this game, if they win 30-14, to, to 14, if they win 30-7, to 7, it completely changes how we feel about Georgia as well of, okay, they are that team this year. They are good enough to win the national championship, so Georgia has something to prove. Speaking of show me something Saturday, you know who I need to show me something? Jim Harbaugh's Michigan Wolverines. And, and I have a love-hate relationship with Jim Harbaugh. Um, you know, it is the relationship where, um, you know, he keeps letting me down, and I keep going back. I tell myself I'll never go back. I'm done with you. It's over. I'm moving my stuff out of the house. And then something happens. They beat Western Michigan 63-5, to 63-7, to and I'm like, okay, I'm back, Jim. I'm back. I'm sorry. I'm with you for – but I've been a, a Jim Harbaugh supporter. And I do believe that he's got Michigan about as good as you can realistically expect them to be in this era in college football. They have, people don't realize Michigan in the last 50 years, I mean, they've won a lot of national championships, but I, I, I throw this stat out all the time. I don't think people realize. They think of Michigan as this great historic power. The key word there is historic. Michigan in the last, they, the last national championship they won, they split a national championship in 97 with Nebraska. For the young people, we used to split national championships. There was no playoff back then. Um, and the, the, the previous national championship before that was 1948. They have won one national championship that they split since 1950. I think people are blown away when I share that stat. So I have been a defender of Harbaugh because I think the job is probably a little bit harder than people realize. But I'll tell you... Uh, I was back on board up until last week against Wisconsin. I did the whole spiel, and I talked about it on the show. He revamped his coaching staff. They're younger. They're more dynamic. They're fun. They're athletic. And then they played Rutgers last week. And they go up 20-3 to in the first half, and I'm feeling good. My guy Harbaugh, I love him. He's great. And then the first four possessions of the second half, they go three and out. They were up 20-3. to They win 20-13 to against Rutgers. And I think Rutgers is doing a good job under Greg Schiano rebuilding that program. But if 20-13 to 13 against Rutgers in year two under Shiano is the best you got, I worry going into this game. I don't know how they're going to match up in their, their first really big, it's their first road game period, but their first really big road game at Camp Randall. And then from Wisconsin, I don't even know what there is to prove other than that the season's not over. Now the good thing for Wisconsin, 
you can argue that probably of their toughest games, if you if Michigan ends up being good, then three of Wisconsin's four toughest games will be behind them by the end of September. They open against Penn State. Last week they played against Notre Dame. They play Michigan at home. And then the rest of the schedule is pretty manageable. They have Iowa later in the year. But other than that, the rest of the schedule is at Illinois, Army, Purdue, Rutgers, Northwestern, Nebraska, and Minnesota. They won't play a ranked team outside Iowa the rest of the year. And so you win this game, all of a sudden this game is this season is kind of salvageable for Wisconsin. Not going to the playoff. You could still win the Big Ten West. You'd only have one loss. Uh, but you lose this game, you're one in three, and the season's basically over. So show me something Saturday from Michigan, maybe even more so than Wisconsin, because I've already seen a lot of Wisconsin and it stinks. The final real big game of the weekend, it's ironically the only top 10 matchup of the weekend. We think of Ole Miss, Alabama, and Arkansas, and and Georgia. Uh, But it is actually Notre Dame hosting Cincinnati. And Cincinnati's a two and a half point favorite. And so why this is show me something Saturday is for this reason. It is because Notre Dame, I actually really like Brian Kelly. Obviously, you listen to Monday's show, and I did like a 16 minute rant on how Brian Kelly, I think, is doing things at Notre Dame that nobody should be doing in this modern era. Um, I think he's incredible. I think he's great. I put out a tweet, by the way, that went crazy viral, and there have been people arguing in my mentions for the past four days about, uh, <laughs> about, uh, about Notre Dame football past, present, and future. But I only bring that up to say this, is that Notre Dame is coming off this big win, but it's easy to forget um, they really struggled to move the ball against Wisconsin and had two INT return for touchdowns, two pick sixes, and then on top of that, had a kick return for a touchdown. And so why I bring it up, Notre Dame is actually entering this game on Saturday as a road or as a home, they're at home in South Bend, a home underdog against Cincinnati. That is how much the odds makers respect Notre Dame, is that Cincinnati is the favorite according to the odds makers. And I'll take it a step further. They're not only the favorite, but on top of that, they are the, the line is moving in Cincinnati's direction. They opened as a two-point favorite. It is now two and a half. I bring it up to say, hey, Notre Dame, you really want to be that program that's on the next level, maybe below Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia? Can't lose Cincinnati at home. Cincinnati, I think it's all self-explanatory. I mean, they have, a, they have a real shot to go to the college football playoff here. I think we are realistically looking um, at an AC, the ACC champ is going to have two losses, okay? Like, nobody in the ACC is getting through without two to three losses. Maybe it's Wake Forest. I don't know. Um, but I bring it up to say, like, the ACC champ is not going to be 12-1 and one and have a playoff resume. I don't believe the ACC is getting into the college football playoff. The Pac-12 is basically down to Oregon. The Pac-12 is basically down to Oregon not crap in the bed. Uh, the Big 12, I believe, is a disaster. Oklahoma does not look like a playoff team to me. By the way, if you want some entertainment, go to my YouTube channel. I posted the segment from the Oklahoma uh, the Oklahoma segment from the show last week on the YouTube channel. Oklahoma fans are not happy with your boy. So I bring it up to say, like, if you're Cincinnati, this is your shot. Last year, first of all, the credit to Cincinnati is they have coming out of last year credibility. They they went undefeated in the regular season. Previous two years, they won 11 games. And then last year, they go undefeated in the regular season, play Georgia Tough in the Peach Bowl. This year, you already won in Indiana. You have a chance to win at Notre Dame. So for Cincinnati, this is show me something Saturday for Cincinnati too. You win this game, uh, you are very much in the thick of the college football playoff conversation going forward. Looking at the rest of the country, a few more show me something games. First of all, Oklahoma. I just talked about them. I made fun of them a little bit. We all had a good laugh at their expense. But what I would say is this. For all the criticism, they're still undefeated. They're 4-0. Now, all four of those games were at home. They barely survived all three against FBS opponents. You want to show me something? Go on the road. Kansas State plays real defense. I don't know how good their offense is, but they play real defense. And you want to show me something? Go on the road. First game away from Norman. Loud crowd in Manhattan. You've lost to Kansas State the last two times that you've played them. Go on the road, show me something, beat them. A couple other teams, I'd use the same vein. The team that I am actually genuinely interested in this weekend is actually Clemson. And it sounds crazy because I've crushed Clemson every chance I got all, all season. Um, but you, you talk about Clemson. This is why I'm interested. What are they playing for at this point right now? And what you have to understand is we are now, this is the eighth year of the college football playoff. So seven college football playoffs have been played. The last six have involved Clemson. 
which means that there is no player on Clemson's roster that was recruited to Clemson. They might have a transfer to, I don't know. But the players that were recruited there that enrolled as freshmen, all they know is going to the playoff. All they know is competing for a national championship. There is not a player on this roster that has ever ended a season that did not end in the college football playoff. And so why I'm fascinated for Clemson is this. They are 2-2 two and two right now. But if you look at it, they still have a lot to play for. They can play for an ACC championship. They can play for a chance to play in a major bowl game. But will that team come out with the energy of a team that has something left to play for? When your goal is playoff or bust, and that goes bust by the end of September, is that team going to be fired up? They're also dealing with a ton of injuries right now. Their leading rusher, Will Shipley, is out. Uh, Brian Brise, their, their star defensive lineman, is out for the year. And so show me something, Clemson. You want to sh- listen? You want to show me that you're anything but cooked for this season? That you're anything other than a six and six team? Go get a dub this weekend against Boston College, who has a backup quarterback in. Uh, really quickly, last team that I think—I mean, there's a lot of other teams, but the last one that needs to show me something on Saturday—it's the University of Kentucky who hosts Florida. And I'm not saying Kentucky has to win, but this is a program that I truly believe coming into the off season um, was the second best team in the SEC West. And if you listen to this show, I told you, I said, look. Tennessee, first-year head coach, they're not going to be good. South Carolina, first-year head coach, they're not going to be good. Vanderbilt football, first-year head coach, they're not going to be good. Uh, Georgia's going to be awesome. Missouri, Eli Drinkowitz, weird guy. They're not better than Kentucky. And so what I said, I think the second-best team in the SEC East. Now, Florida is better than I expected, and if Kentucky loses this game to Florida, I don't think it's anything to kind of uh, hang your hat about. But at the same time, This is one of Kentucky's most talented rosters, I would argue, in the history of the school. You have legitimate five-star talent. Uh, You have NFL players all over that roster. You get an all-SEC left tackle transferring in from LSU. You got the dudes to compete with Florida. And all offseason, I heard that this offense was going to be revamped, and I heard from Mark Stoops that it was different, and this guy Liam Cohen and Will Levis. Well... Will Levis hasn't been very good the last two games. He's actually really struggled, uh, was great in the opener. Five touchdowns, one interception in the opener uh, against Louisiana Monroe. Last three games, three touchdowns, four interceptions. And so it's not all falling on his shoulders. It's not all falling on Mark Stoops, the offensive coordinator. But what I'm saying is, Kentucky, you're a legitimate top 25 team. Go show me. You got Florida at home. Top 25 teams win home games against other top 25 teams. Not saying if you don't win, it's a disappointment. But I just think it's really interesting. So, yeah. I think you could tell by listening to that segment that, one, I am very fired up about this weekend ahead. And then, two, we got a great weekend in college football. And so what we're going to do next uh, Friday's show, I'll do the full breakdown, who I think is going to win, how I think the game is going to go down, everything that I always do on a normal Friday show. Uh, But what I want to do now is I want to take a quick break. Because as I said, uh, today, Tuesday, was the first day that college football teams were allowed to practice Uh, officially under NCAA rules. And so what I want to do is come back. I'm fired up for college hoops. Could not believe how fired up that I was uh, just thinking about college basketball and all that stuff. I want to come back. I want to give you the seven storylines that I am most excited about as it pertains to this college basketball season. I will be right back to discuss all of that. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. And I actually want to transition to a little bit of college hoops. And it hasn't been by coincidence that, or it hasn't been on purpose, I should say, that every Wednesday it seems like something in college hoops comes up. Three weeks ago, Shaden Sharp commits to Kentucky. Two weeks ago, Chris Livingston commits to Kentucky. One week ago, Derek Livingston commits to Duke. I should mention, by the way, we will have more College Hoops news later this week. Nick Smith, a five-star from the state of Arkansas, is committing on Thursday. I don't want to assume anything. It seems as though he is going to commit to Arkansas, whoever he commits to. I have no inside information. I'm not claiming to be a recruiting guru. But wherever he ends up, we'll talk about it on Friday's episode. But I bring it up because every single week, it seems as though College Hoops, something is happening that reminds us, hey, This sport still matters. You got to talk about it, Torres. Get into it. Break it down. And on this past Tuesday, obviously I'm recording Tuesday night for Wednesday's show, something else happened that I think is worthy of a topic, a conversation, a discussion on today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. And what is that? 
It is that Tuesday was the first day that college basketball teams could practice officially by NCAA rules. Now, I'll be honest, this isn't as big as it used to be. Uh, For people who are of my age group or even a little bit older, there used to be this really cool thing called Midnight Madness where every team was able to start practicing on a Friday and at that point they would have basically what is now the equivalent of their first night, their uh, Big Blue Madness, whatever the term is. Everybody would have their first practice at midnight. It would be broadcast. It would be exactly at midnight. You'd get fans in the stands. It would be awesome. It is no longer like that. Teams are able to practice in the summer. They're able to practice in the fall. But Tuesday was the first day that they were officially allowed to practice as though they are getting ready for the season on a schedule that prepares them for the season, which will kick off on whatever it is, November 6th or 7th, whatever the official date is with the Champions Classic, Duke versus Kentucky, Michigan State versus Kansas. Uh, By the way, I should mention we are going to have a ton of coverage of college hoops on Aaron Torres Online in the lead-up to college basketball season. Got a great writer doing previews of the top 30 teams in the country. I will be doing all my usual stuff, best games, best transfers, best this, best that. I will give my Final Four National Championship picks at some point. But what I figured was this. Since we are now... Uh, officially practice has begun since we are now I don't know 40 or so days away from the start of the season you got to check John Rothstein's Twitter feed to get the official countdown but as we get close what I figured I'd do today is with official practices starting I want to give you the seven big topics that I am fascinated by going into college basketball season now to be clear there are actually significantly more than seven topics because I think this is going to be about as good of a season as I can remember in recent history Um, and so listen if your team is not included it doesn't mean I don't like them I think they stink I think they this I think they that but what I want to do is get to the big seven topics that I believe are the most interesting stories going into college hoop season and I would say it with a little bit of an addendum from this perspective is one There's obviously much more. Two, there will be plenty to talk about in the lead up to the season. And three, it's almost like I said with college football about five, six, seven, eight weeks ago. If you remember the middle of August, the beginning of August, we were still talking transfer portal. We were still talking Imani Bates, Jalen Duran. And what I kept telling you was what I want to do is reconfigure your brain. I want to re-remind you of what matters, of what's important. Six, seven weeks ago, it was about college football. Now it is about college basketball. So what I want to do here in the coming minutes is go ahead and give you the seven biggest storylines in my opinion as it pertains to the 2021-2022 college hoop season with the reminder that practices officially tipped off on Tuesday. Some teams had to wait until Wednesday because of NCAA rules, but I bring it up to say it's going to be an awesome season. So topic number one, these are the seven most interesting storylines heading into the college basketball season in my opinion. Number one, and these are in no particular order, but number one, the Memphis Tigers. And Memphis is a fascinating program, right? I talk about them a ton. I've never talked, let me put it this way. I've never talked about a reigning NIT champion as much as I've talked about the Memphis Tigers this offseason, but it is absolutely incredible, and we all know the narratives, and we all know the reason why. Penny Hardaway now entering year four. He has not made an NCAA tournament. As I've said many times, last season he had a team good enough to make an NCAA tournament. Unfortunately, they had a couple bad losses early. They couldn't make up for it late. They end up in the NIT. They win the NIT. That's not why I'm talking about them, though. We don't talk about NIT champions on this program unless it's very fascinating. And so what is fascinating at Memphis is what has happened since that NIT championship last March or April. First of all, they actually lost a couple really good players to the transfer portal. Boogie Ellis goes to USC, Musa Cisse goes to Oklahoma State, DJ Jeffries goes to Mississippi State. And when that happens, you think, ah, Memphis is going to be whatever. Who cares? We don't need to pay attention to them. Ah, yeah, just one problem. They went out and had one of the craziest off-seasons that I can ever remember, okay? First of all, to their credit, like, they did bring back their two leading scorers from last year, DeAndre Williams, a transfer from Evansville, Landers Nolly, a transfer from Virginia Tech. Both were really, really, really good last year, and they were coming back. If only those guys came back, I thought Memphis was an NCAA tournament team. But that is not even the tip of the iceberg of what happened at Memphis. First of all, Penny Hardaway shook up his coaching staff. Not sure if you heard, but here are the two big additions to the coaching staff this offseason. One, an assistant coach by the name of Larry Brown. Not sure if you've heard of him, 
NBA Hall of Famer, Basketball Hall of Famer, uh, NBA Championship winning coach, won a national championship at Kansas a million years ago. Larry Brown, one of the five best basketball minds, arguably in the history of the sport, is now an assistant coach at Memphis. Additionally, Larry Brown, they also hired another assistant coach, some guy named Rasheed Wallace. Not sure if you heard of him, former NBA All-Star, uh, iconic player, interesting player, fascinating player. He is now an assistant coach at Memphis. So you have Rasheed Wallace, you have Larry Brown, and in addition to those two, oh, here is what happened at the end of the summer. Because usually, for, for there are three, let's just say 365 teams in Division One college basketball. I don't know if that number is exactly right. It could be 358. It could be 371. Let's just say 365. Because for 300, if there's 365 teams, 364 of them basically had their roster set by, I don't know, um, July 1st, July 15th, once the NBA draft deadline was, was over. There was one program, though, that went nuclear after July 1st, and that program was Memphis. So in addition to hiring Larry Brown, in addition to hiring Rasheed Wallace, here is what they did this offseason. Uh, they went out and got Jalen Durant, the number one high school player in the class of 2022. He reclassified. He committed to Memphis. And then, oh, by the way, three weeks later, Amani Bates, some believe, at one point was believed to be the best high school basketball player since LeBron, was also a member of the class of 2022, was supposed to be a senior this coming season in high school. He is now a freshman at Memphis. And so you look at what Memphis has done this offseason, it's insanity. A Hall of Fame head coach is now an assistant coach. A former NBA All-Star is now an assistant coach. And two of the top five players in the class of 2022 were supposed to be high school seniors are now at Memphis. And so what this leads to is maybe the single most fascinating team in college basketball this coming season. And it's the single most fascinating college basketball team this season for all of the reasons that I mentioned and so much more. First of all, Penny Hardaway, every single year I've talked about it, he has had a, excuse is not the right word, but a reason as to why his teams have not had the success that you would expect. Year one, he takes over for Tubby Smith, inherits a bunch of players that are good but not great, does okay, goes to the NIT, whatever. Year two, gets the number one recruiting class in the country, brings in James Wiseman, James Wiseman plays three games. He leaves. Third best player on the uh, team. Third leading scorer, DJ Jeffries, gets hurt. Memphis wasn't projected to make the NCAA tournament, but we have COVID, so it doesn't matter anyway. But, you know, when you lose the number two pick in the draft, it tends to hurt your program. Last year, again, they were good enough to make the NCAA tournament by the end of the year, struggled at the beginning of the year. So I bring it up to say Memphis is the single most fascinating team because Penny Hardaway is officially out of excuses. And I talked about it when Imani Bates committed. I'm not going to reiterate. I'm not going to beat a dead horse. But Penny Hardaway has not made a single NCAA tournament since he has been there. And this year, he is set up to have so much success. Outside of one team in his conference, Houston, he is significantly more talented than everybody else in this league. And so when you look at Penny Hardaway, when you look at Memphis, it's a zero-sum game. It's not only good enough to make the NCAA tournament, but with this roster, you need to make the second weekend. And let me take it a step beyond that. You can't make the second weekend as an 11 seed that gets into the tournament at 21-11 and 11 overall. You have a roster that is built in this particular regular season to go like 28-4. and four to go 29 and 5, to go 30 and 4, whatever it is, for Memphis to have the kind of success that people expect them to have, that is the kind of season that you have to have because that is the kind of roster that you have. And what'll be fascinating is to see if it'll happen. We're already hearing buzz that Amani Bates, who has been in primarily a scorer, a wing, now is being told that he is going to handle the ball, but I think on top of that, what is most fascinating about Memphis is this. They just got a lot of really good players. And how do all those players fit together on one roster? And it sounds crazy. It sounds stupid. You figure it out if you're a coach. I get all that. But what I'm telling you is behind the scenes in college basketball, I can tell you what the conversations are. Memphis had 11 scholarship players coming into summer workouts, okay? So picture being one of those guys. Picture being DeAndre Williams, Lester Quinones, uh, Landers Nolly, any of the guys on the roster, Jonathan Lawson, Chandler Lawson. You go through summer workouts. You're in Memphis in the middle of the summer. You're running on the track. You're running sprints. It's 110 degrees. You come back 
for the fall semester, and you have two five-star freshmen that are expected to play in front of you. How is that going to play in the locker room? Now, maybe Penny Hardaway, and everyone thinks I crushed Penny Hardaway. It has nothing to do with Penny Hardaway. It's no disrespect to Penny Hardaway. I'm just saying he has a lot of chemistry things more than anything to work out with this team because I am telling you right now, there are, I don't know, if there's 13 guys on scholarship, I guarantee you 11 to 12 of them think they should be playing big minutes and contributing immediately. So you have your two top scorers back. You have two of the top five prospects from the class of 2022. We're classifying. Fascinating story in Memphis. If Memphis is the number one most fascinating team in college basketball, let me tell you who number two is in my opinion. That is Aaron Torres' Texas Longhorns. That's right. I, I Listen, I will tell you this. And I've told, I was telling my former intern, Zach, who now, he's the biggest college hoops junkie I know outside of myself. I was texting with him the other day, and I told him, I said, once a day, I'm walking around, living my life, doing whatever it is I do, going to Buffalo Wild Wings for a cold beverage, doing my college football picks, and something strikes me in the middle of a day. It'll be like Tuesday at 11 a.m. I'll just be like, oh my God, Texas is really good at basketball. Texas basketball is so loaded this year, and I think they are so fascinating as well. And as a quick refresher, again, this is what this is for, to refresh your mind of what you need to know, what you might have forgotten, whatever. Chris Beard makes a national championship game at Texas Tech in 2019. This past offseason leaves Texas Tech to go back to his alma mater, Texas. And I don't know Chris Beard. I've interviewed him a few times. Don't, wouldn't say I, I definitely don't know him. I definitely don't think he really cares for me very much, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, the interviews I've had with him were very straightforward. There was no, uh, no messing around. But I bring it up when it pertains to Chris Beard for this. I really get the vibe. Two things. One, and I said this when he was hired, he went to a Final Four and two Elite Eights when he was at Texas Tech. If he did not believe he was going to go to a school that could top that, that could be a national championship contender every single year, I do not believe that Chris Beard would have left Texas Tech. So he went to Texas Tech because he believed that he can build them into it, or he went from Texas Tech to Texas because he believes that he can build them into a national championship contender. And let me just say this. I think he did. I think he did in one offseason. And I think on top of that, what I would also say, this feels like Chris Beard, like this is Chris Beard, uh, you know, John Rothstein, I, I keep referencing John Rothstein, but he is one of the faces of college basketball. And what John Rothstein says, Chris Beard fully loaded. That's that's his little phrase for Chris Beard. And that's what it feels like with Chris Beard at Texas. It is full speed ahead. This is his chance to build his alma mater into a superpower. And he is taking, cutting no corners in terms of building Texas into that kind of program. In terms of what you may have forgotten since the offseason began, he goes to Texas. He puts together, I would argue, Probably, if it is not the highest paid staff in college basketball, probably number two behind Kentucky. We've talked about Kentucky a lot. Chin Coleman, Orlando Antigua, we'll get to them in a minute. Uh, probably number two most high paid staff in the country. He got two head coaches that were head coaches last year in D1 to leave head coaching jobs to come be assistants at Texas. Rodney Terry, who was at UTEP. Chris Ogden, who was at UT Arlington. On top of that, he got Jarence Howard, who was Bill Self's number one recruiter at Texas or at Kansas to leave Kansas to come to Texas. I don't know the details. I haven't done a freedom of information to see how much this guy makes. What I'm telling you is this. You do not leave Kansas to go somewhere else unless you are getting a boatload of cash thrown at your feet. But what I'll say is this. The highest paid staff in college basketball delivered. Second highest paid staff behind Kentucky, whatever. Because they put together, outside of Memphis, the single most fascinating roster in college basketball. And if I'm yelling and screaming, it is because I'm actually like so excited for this season to start. I love college football. I could talk college football 365 days a year. But I love college basketball, too. I, I don't know what to say. I, 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 don't, I don't even want to try to make an analogy there because I'm going to offend somebody trying to explain how I love one compared to the other. But when I look at Texas, and yes, that was kind of a... a I'm not even going to say it. I'm not even going to say it. Um, but I bring that up to very simply say this. You look at Texas. You look at who they have on this roster. I'm telling you, if Memphis is one of the five most talented rosters in college basketball, I think you can legitimately argue Texas might have. Are you ready for that? Texas might have the most talented roster in college basketball. 
For people who have forgotten, Texas hit the transfer portal so hard. So hard Texas hit the transfer portal. Here is who they got out of the transfer portal this offseason. It's worth noting, I did a transfer ranking the other day out of sheer interest and boredom. Of the top 20 transfers, Texas got five of them. I think Kentucky had three or four. Uh, Arkansas had one or two. Like, like, nobody hit the portal harder than Texas, okay? Here's who Texas got out of the portal. They got Timmy Allen, who was an all-Pac-12 first-team guard. They got Dylan Dissu, SEC's leading rebounder at Vanderbilt, 15-9 at Vanderbilt. They got Christian Bishop, who started at Creighton, Big East co-champ two years ago, Sweet 16 team this year, transferred from Creighton. Trey Mitchell, former top 100 recruit, 18-8. And, and oh, when they were done with that, this is what they did in July. They went out and got Marcus Carr from Minnesota out of the NBA draft, came back, went to Texas. So you look at their just their transfer stuff. Marcus Carr, all Big Ten guard. Timmy Allen, all Pac-12 guard. Dylan Dissu, SEC's leading rebounder. Christian Bishop, starter on a Sweet 16 team that won the Big East two years ago. Trey Mitchell, former top 100 recruit who averaged 18-8 at UMass. And that's on top of the fact that they returned two of their top three leading scorers off last year's team that was a number three seed in the tournament, Andrew Jones and Courtney Ramey. And so I look at this team, and I'm just telling you, they might have the most talented roster in college basketball. Like I said with Memphis, doesn't mean it's going to work, doesn't mean the chemistry is going to be there, doesn't mean that all the pieces are going to fit. I am just telling you, there are going to be nights where they take the court, and you're like, oh my God, that team is unbelievable. And it's going to be fascinating to see if it works. Marcus Carr, of course, who came from Minnesota, it's worth noting, he has been a guy that historically has been very shot happy. How is he going to handle things with more talented teammates than he had? There's a lot of questions, but it's absolutely fascinating. Texas, to me, one of the most fascinating teams in college basketball this year. By the way, you know who Texas plays on opening night or our second game of the season? The Gonzaga Bulldogs, let's get into them because to me they're fascinating as well. And what's interesting with Gonzaga is a few things. First of all, it was not a great offseason for Mark Few. Uh, about a month ago, I think it was actually Labor Day weekend, he got a DUI. And I'm not here to make light of it. I'm not here to make fun of it. Um, and I didn't talk about it on this podcast. And the reason I didn't really talk about it on this podcast is because there's nothing for me to say, right? Like, I like to come on this show and talk about things where I have a strong or interesting opinion on something. There is no interesting opinion on driving drunk. I'm not saying Mark Few's a terrible human being. I'm not saying he's an evil person. Like, like, but what I am saying is there's nothing to say. He shouldn't have done it. It was stupid. It was whatever. But it is going to be a cloud going into the season. I suspect that he will be suspended for at least a few games coming into the season. I thought it was really interesting. Matt Norlander on his podcast, CBS Sports, brought up the point of like, if a player got a DUI in the offseason, they're dealing with a three, four, five, who knows how many game suspension. You would think Gonzaga does the same with Mark Few. Well, they play Texas on the second night, second game of the season. It is the first Saturday of the season. Unfortunately, that is a Saturday game, which I kind of hate. I wish they played that game on a, a weeknight. But I only bring it up to just say, Gonzaga's really interesting. They go 30-0 in the regular season last year, 30-0 into the national championship game. They lose to... Uh, Baylor, and they just have a completely different roster. Corey Kispert, Jalen Suggs, Joel, aye, aye, my guy, are out in our Drew Timmy's back, and Chet Holmgren's in. And then, so I think everybody's just like, Timmy Holmgren, Timmy Holmgren, that's awesome. Uh, Andrew Nemhard, that's awesome. Here's the thing about Gonzaga that's really interesting to me, though. One, Few's going to be facing a suspension. Two, his longtime assistant coach, Tommy Lloyd, is now the head coach at Arizona. Three, their guards outside of Andrew Nemhard are really young. They brought in two five-star guards, Hunter Salas and Nolan Hickman. Nolan Hickman had previously been committed to Kentucky. And why is that interesting and why is it relevant? It is because Gonzaga has been a program that for years has developed players within the program. Now every once in a while you get a Jalen Suggs or a Zach Collins that are elite that become one and dones, but most of their freshmen come in have to be patient, have to bide their time, have to learn the system. Even Drew Timmy, as good as he was last year as a sophomore, barely played as a freshman. I think that's important because I think this is an interesting offseason and a potential interesting crossroads for this program. This is a program that has brought in players who were going to develop, who needed time, and once they developed, they turned into really good college basketball players. I'm not disrespecting Hunter Salas. I'm not disrespecting Nolan Hickman. 
But are those guys going to be willing to wait their turn behind Andrew Nemhart, behind Dominic Harris, who was basically a redshirt last year? He didn't redshirt, but he barely played. It's just going to be interesting because for years it was always like Gonzaga's doing it with these four-star recruits and they're really developing them. Imagine what they could do with five stars. Well, now they got the five stars. Are those kids going to be able to be willing to be patient and buy their time? Everybody's focused on Drew, Ch- Drew Timmy and Chet Holmgren. I am more interested on the guards and what it means for this team. A couple other stories before we get out of here. We are through three big stories. Number four, I just talked about Gonzaga. How about that team that they played in the national semifinals, the final four, UCLA? Because I talk about interesting, fascinating teams. UCLA is pretty close to the top, and let me tell you why. It's kind of what I've said about all these teams. How does the chemistry come into play? Because when you look at UCLA, I would have to look this up. I don't know it off the top of my head. UCLA, this is an incredible stat. They bring back every single player who played in their Final Four run last year. So they played four NCAA tournament games. Every single player who played a minute on the road to the Final Four where they almost beat Gonzaga, every single player is back. I can never remember, and maybe it's happened recently and I don't remember it. Wichita State a few years ago brought back a lot of guys, whatever. I can't remember a team that brought back everybody. And so what's going to be fascinating to me is a couple things. One, they bring back nine guys who played on that NCAA tournament run last year. I think 10 technically, one of them was basically a role player. Are all those guys perfectly comfortable with the exact same role that they had last year? Because... It doesn't really feel like a ton is going to change, right? Like Johnny Juzang is still going to get the most of their shots. Tiger Campbell's going to handle the ball. Cody Riley's going to be the force down low. Is everyone comfortable with their role essentially being the exact same thing as last year? On top of that, they brought in two guys that are expected to play right away. Peyton Watson, five-star, McDonald's All-American, Long Beach Poly High School. Known as a football school, he's a basketball player. He's a projected top 10 pick. He might not even start for this team. And it's easy to say, oh, you know, he's going to find his spot, all that stuff. I mean, as a freshman, is he going to be better than Johnny Juzang? I don't know. And by the way, what if he is? How does it impact the the roster? I'm not saying he's a bad kid. I'm not saying whatever. I'm just saying you add him, you add Miles Johnson, a transfer from Rutgers who was a starter on an NCAA tournament team last year. And I just think it's fascinating. I just think it's fascinating because you bring back nine guys who all played roles in getting to a Final Four. They're basically going to be asked to play the exact same role this year, and then you bring in two guys on top of that that are now going to to have to integrate themselves in the system, figure out how they fit in. You have a potential lottery pick that doesn't have a direct path to a starting spot. I'm not saying anybody's a bad kid, anybody's a bad coach. I love Mick Cronin. Big Mick energy, baby. Nothing like some big Mick energy for you here on a Wednesday morning. But I'm just telling you, uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch this team see how it all unfolds. Uh, Wrapping up here, that is four of the topics. We talked Memphis, Texas, UCLA, Gonzaga. Number five, it's the Kentucky Wildcats. Um, Kentucky's coming off a historically bad season last year. 9-15, 9-16, whatever it was. It, It got so bad we were referencing the Basil Hayden era, okay? Like Basil Hayden. At some point, Coach Kentucky, the last time they were as bad as they were last year, Basil Hayden was the head coach, okay? Not sure how many of you remember the Basil Hayden era. It was a long time ago. John Calipari, to his credit, completely revamped the entire program. I've talked about it a ton with Shaden Sharp, with Chris Chris Livingston, but went out, hired, uh, revamped his staff, Orlando Antigua and Shin Coleman are in. But what I actually really like what he did, he went out and hit the transfer portal hard. Now, part of it was he really didn't get to see any of the high school players in the class of 2020 last year, and so it was kind of one of those deals where are you going to take a chance on a high school kid that you've never seen, but I like the guys that he brought in. Severe Wheeler, point guard from Georgia, led the SEC in assists. Uh, C.J. Frederick, shooter from Iowa, 47% career three-point shooter, so that's exciting. He obviously had an off-season injury, so we'll see what happens with that. Uh, and on top of that, Oscar Shibwe from West Virginia. He was technically with the team last year. And then a guy I think could be really, really good for them, Kellen Grady, a guard who played at Davidson four-time all-A-10 guard at Davidson. And so when I look at this team, what I love is that you brought in a bunch of mature veterans who appreciate what it means to wear a Kentucky uniform. No disrespect to anybody on last year's team. You could kind of tell they didn't really care. They were there for a couple months. They wanted to get the heck out. 
and they did as much. Um, and as far as additionally on this roster, outside of those guys, and by the way, I should mention, obviously, I'm talking about B.J. Boston, who's now in the NBA, the late Terrence Clark. No disrespect to Terrence Clark, but I'm just saying it was clear that some of those guys weren't fully invested in the program. On top of the four transfers that you brought in, you brought in a couple of elite freshmen, Ty Ty Washington, Damian Collins, and also, and this is important now, they get a couple of returnees back. Keon Brooks, listen, I'm going to do an AT prediction here, okay? This could end up being where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong in a month from now. I think Keon Brooks is going to be an X-Factor. Keon Brooks was a player who played uh, meaningful minutes as a freshman two years ago, and then this past year missed a ton of time in the preseason with an injury, tried to come back, and even when he struggled, still averaged over 10 points per game uh, for a team that really struggled. I think he's going to be an X-Factor. Davion Mintz as well is also back. And so I just bring all this up to just say, I think Kentucky is due for a major bounce back year. They are one of the most fascinating teams to me. You know what's fascinating, but also a little bit disheartening? A little sickening, maybe, if you will. Um, it's the Duke Blue Devils. And I'm not like Mr. Anti-Duke. Like, like Duke, it's like anything else, right? Duke is the New York Yankees. They're Notre Dame football, who I have a wild Notre Dame football angry thread going on on my Twitter feed. Um, but I bring it up because, because Duke is going to be fascinating this year. But unfortunately, it is also the Coach K retirement tour. And Coach K is doing the Derek Jeter the late Kobe Bryant, uh, he's going city to city, and he is. everyone's got to fawn over him and gush over him and talk about how great he is and all that stuff. I am curious, is he going to get the Derek Jeter treatment where he gets a little gift in every city? Uh, when he goes to Louisville, is he getting the Louisville Slugger baseball bat? When he goes to Boston, is he getting a clam chowder named after him at a restaurant? What does it all mean? I don't know, uh, but it is going to be exhausting. It starts with a game at Kentucky, and what I will say is this. Uh, he had a media availability on Tuesday, and Duke Basketball tweeted out this weird, like very weird graphic of Coach K sitting on a throne. This is what Duke Basketball tweeted out. This wasn't some weird fan. It wasn't on a message board. This was legitimately from the Duke Basketball Twitter account. It was a weird graphic of Coach K sitting on a throne with a goat in front of him, apparently implying him that he's the greatest of all time with three gold medals around his neck, national championship banners behind him, and it's just, it's the weirdest thing. If you go to my Twitter feed, at Aaron underscore Torres, you'll see it. But it just reminded me, the Coach K retirement tour, I'm going to miss Coach K. I mean, he is literally college basketball history. He has been around dating back to when, I don't know, David Robinson was playing at Navy and UNLV was rolling under Jerry Tarkanian and Dean Smith. I mean, he really is a lifeline to the past and present of college basketball, but this retirement tour is going to be exhausting. Finally, the last little thing I'd say, I can't believe I did 30 freaking minutes on college basketball. It's got to be fired up. I told you I'm ready to go. Um, it is that the number seven thing in terms of the things that I am most interested about is this. It is, we have so many good teams this year. And, it, and, and this year, it's not, it doesn't sound like a topic, but it is. This year was the perfect confluence of events in college basketball where we got as much talent in college basketball as I can ever remember. And let me explain why. First of all, every player gets an extra year because of COVID. Think about all the players that that brought back to college basketball, okay? So Villanova gets Colin Gillespie and Jermaine Samuels back. Two starters off a team that was in the top five all year last year until they got injuries late back at Villanova. Um, Marcus Carr is only at Texas because of the one-time uh, one waiver. Kellen Grady is only at Kentucky because of the extra year of eligibility. You know, you go on and on down the list. Uh, I, I can't even remember everybody who is part of college basketball this year because of the one-time extra year benefit, or the one-time extra year because of COVID, but the names, the guys that are in this sport, because Remy Martin at Kansas, uh, Miles Johnson, the guy I just mentioned at UCLA, you go, it's, it's incredible the amount of talent that remains in college basketball because of that. On top of that, you have the one-time transfer rule. And you know the players that were impacted by the one-time transfer rule eligible right away. Severe Wheeler at Kentucky, Oscar Shibway at Kentucky, uh, C.J. Frederick at Kentucky, all the guys I mentioned at, at uh, Texas, Timmy Allen, Christian Bishop, Dylan Dissu, 
Uh, you go on and on down the list. Arkansas, Stanley Amude, uh, Chris Likes. Chris Likes is another example, by the way, of a guy that's in college basketball because of the one-time transfer. Audis Tony, uh, Mike Woodson brought in three transfers that are all eligible to play right away. And so I bring it up because you have those two factors. Then you have name image likeness, which I do believe played a factor in just about every relevant college uh, high school basketball player except for Jaden Hardy coming to play college basketball this year. And so you look at the talent. And by the way, that includes Jalen Duran, That includes Imani Bates. I don't think either of them is playing college basketball this year without name image likeness. But I bring it up just to say the talent in college basketball is off the charts, okay? The teams that I've listed like UCLA, Gonzaga, Texas, I think in any given year could have been a number one team in the country. All three of them are in college basketball this year. This Kentucky team, I think I have it number eight in this season, number seven going into the year. This is maybe the most talented, deepest roster they've had in four, five, six years. Kansas, this is maybe the most talented, deepest roster they've had in four, five, six years. And so I only bring it up to say that this perfect confluence of events has led to this incredible boon in talent in college basketball, and it it shows in the top 25. Let me give you an example. Illinois, as an example, basically when Kofi Coburn decided to come back, they bring back everybody off last year's team that was a number one seed except for Io DeSumo, who's obviously an All-American, friend of the Aaron Torres podcast, by the way, I should mention, but they bring back four or five starters. They add some guys through the portal, I have them at number 14 in the country. That is how good Illinois is going to be this year. They return four or five starters off a number one seed, and they're number 14 in the country. Uh, Arkansas is awesome. UNC with the transfer portal, Hubert Davis, is awesome. Oregon, which wins the Pac-12 seemingly every year, is awesome. Michigan, Hunter Dickinson returning is awesome. And so I just bring it back to say, guys, we're like a month away. I don't know if I'm going to talk college hoops every single episode, every single week going forward, but this season is about to be so awesome, and practice officially started on Tuesday. And I think that's it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Before we get out of here, I want to remind you of all the things that have been going on in the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast world, the Aaron Torres media world, etc. First of all, make sure that you are subscribed to this show, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you are following on social media. That is huge. Uh, Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, the Aaron Torres Podcast YouTube channel, um, Aaron Torres Media, AaronTorresOnline.com for all the writing. Obviously, I will be writing more. My college football picks go up every Wednesday. Once College Hoops gets here, I'll be doing a little bit more writing over there. Uh, we got a lot of good uh, members of our staff doing great work over there. John Frisella, Austin Montgomery covering the NFL. Uh, uh, excuse me, I almost coughed over my myself there. But... Uh, on top of those guys, I'm doing a lot of college football stuff. I'll transition to college basketball. We are going to have a really cool college basketball series coming up on the site. Like I said, 30 teams in 30 days starting next week where we break down the 30 teams in college basketball that you most need to know. So make sure you're at, at AaronTorresOnline.com. Uh, and as I mentioned, by the way, I did mention this the other day, but we have started team-specific Twitter pages for um, for a lot of these big teams in college athletics. Uh, Torres on the Hogs is already rolling. Uh, Torres on UK is Kentucky. That will be launching here soon. If they, if, if no later, then uh, I guess it would be uh, probably around Big Blue Madness is the latest that will start. Uh, we also have, it, it is worth mentioning, uh, Torres on Bama is getting ready to launch. You could guess who that's about. And as I said on the last episode, if you think you are the type of person that would be great at running one of these accounts, uh, feel free to reach out to me and we'll get you started. Also, looking for people specifically, Tennessee, UConn, uh, Arizona, schools like that. Let me know if you are at all interested. Uh, but yeah, great episode today. Let's go. That's about it. Uh, I could go on and on and on and on and on, but that is all for today's episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I want to thank you for listening. As I said, make sure to subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, as I said, and that's all, man. I'm fired up. College Hoops is here. College football is definitely here. Uh, I will be back on Friday 
I will be back on Friday with a new episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast previewing week five of the college football season. As I said, Nick Smith is set to commit over the weekend, top or, or on Thursday, excuse me, top 10 prospect in America. I think it'll be Arkansas, but who knows? That is all for today's show. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. I will be back later this week with a new episode of the Aaron Torres Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.